This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we're going to be exploring the afterlife in a whole new way, talking about a new science of the afterlife. Now, why a science? Well, it's because we have lost touch with a big part of our own reality, with our souls. We can't feel them anymore. And because we can't feel our souls, it feels like they're not there. That's why we have created this enormous uh, medical infrastructure, because we're desperately afraid of dying. And there's nothing wrong with prolonging your life. It's a wonderful blessing. But there's also nothing wrong with not fearing the afterlife. Let's get into it with our author today, Dan Drayson. Dan is an old friend. We have been friends for many, many years, and you are looking at the reason that my audio books are so beautifully read, because he is my audio editor. He has a masterful ear, and believe you me, uh, he is a hard taskmaster. Uh, I have learned from experience that the least little cough will be noticed, and that's great. So welcome to Dreamland, Dan. Thank you, Whitley. It's great to be with you today. Well, thanks. Dan is a documentary, award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's been a photographer and media producer for longer than I dare say, more than 60 years, it says here. Um, uh, he's been featured in the, uh, as featured in his documentary, Calling Earth. He's been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication through traditional mental and physical mediumship, as well as modern electronics, certainly since, ever since I knew you. And that's at least 30 years, Dan. Wow. So here we are with a new sign. Time goes by, doesn't it? Dan, it does. It does indeed. Uh, Now, let me ask you this. Let's start, as we often do with a new guest, at the very beginning. Something very special must have sparked your interest in the afterlife. Uh, What did? Well, it's a combination of many things. Um, I've always been fascinated with what goes on beyond the veil, as it were. Um, And... I should explain that from my perspective, um, you know, what is what is the veil? To me, the veil is simply our senses, our physical senses, which are, are tuned to a very, very narrow slice of the spectrum of reality. You know, our, they're, they're, they're suited to our functioning in the physical world, and that's fine. But there's so much beyond that. Um, you know, our sciences, even our physical sciences although they haven't actually extended our senses, they've sent us an important important message that there's more. We've been able to build instruments that look into uh, the greater spectrum of of, uh, light, sound, and and, uh, many levels of of vibration that underlie our physical plane, our physical reality. And that should tell us that there may be even more. And that when we however we do it, when we focus our our attention beyond the limits of our physical senses, whether it's intellectually or experientially, through meditation, through medicines, and so on, 
um, we're beginning to um, push the limits of what we can sense and experience directly. And that, that experience is really the, the foundation of everything else. You know, our experience is our consciousness in action. And so um, that, that's been my, my attitude. And I've, I've felt that, uh, always felt that um, our, our scientific methods and our scientific attitudes can help us expand our horizons and be more willing and, com- and more comfortable with extending our, our sense of reality. Now, this, <clears throat> for me personally, began really in my childhood when I experienced a number of precognitive dreams. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't understand it, but it was, it was sufficient to let me know that in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. That there, that there are aspects of of a, a greater reality that we're not normally tuned into or, or privy to. Um, that led to an interest, and I'm, I was born in the early 1940s. I, I just turned 81 last year. I can hardly believe it myself. Yeah, um, I know the feeling. But, right. So I, anyway, I grew up in the days before the uh, the curtain had come down on the UFO question. Back in the 40s, it was uh, quite a, a respectable topic of discussion. And there was actually, I grew up on the East Coast in, in New Jersey, and there was a, a, a radio broadcast, a newscaster named Frank Edwards, who every evening would broadcast the news. And he would also give UFO sighting and landing reports, which was, you know, it was no big deal then. It was a, it was a really fascinating, interesting topic that, that was in the news. You know, this is before the curtain came down in, in the 1950s. So that caught my attention. You know, here was another aspect of reality that we either we couldn't explain or that was um, socially or politically um, taboo. That piqued my interest. I became um, very avidly involved in the field of UFO investigation. I'd had a number of, over the years, I had a number of sightings and interesting experiences myself. And um, that led, or that that fueled um, a, a more sort of avid interest in, you know, what what's, what actually is going on now that, that we are, um, that we may have inklings of, but that our, our culture and our society and our, our established religions and so on um, have, have um, in a way, they've sort of cluttered our perspective. And so my, one of my um, disciplines, you might say, is to try to see through as much of that as possible. Now, regarding the afterlife in particular, um, this came up for me in the 1990s when I met um, a fellow named Mark Macy, <clears throat> who lives in Boulder, Colorado. Mark, excuse me, had had just uh, written a book about instrumental transcommunication, which is the communication from the afterlife through modern electronics. And I was, frankly, a a bit skeptical at first. Uh, But then I started to uh, study the topic, met people who were practicing this as a a discipline and as a means of of communicating with their departed um, loved ones. And found that it was it was quite uh, a legitimate practice, and and highly evidential because it's it's quite physical, um, and can't be denied. So um, 
later I teamed up with my co-producer, Tim Coleman. We um, traveled across the United States and to several European countries um, to produce two documentary films. The first one is called Calling Earth, and it's, it focuses on uh, the practice of communicating with the other side through electronics, mostly from the other side to us through electronics. The second film was called Skoll, The Afterlife Experiment. And this um, documented um, an experiment that took place in the late 1990s in a tiny English village named Skoll. It's about a half hour northeast of Cambridge, um, in which uh, two couples for a period of five years held um, sessions um, totaling 500 sessions over five years in which they um, communicated with a team on the other side and they and this team worked together to um, produce experiments that would uh, allow those on the other side to manifest uh, images and sounds and physical objects that could be recorded or preserved for further analysis. And this, uh, this experiment, the Skoll experiment, um, was, was documented in, in several books. It was in the press. Um, and Tim and I made this document, the only documentary, as far as I know, that's ever been made about it. So these were the two, in, in the course of making these films, of course, we met many people who had been doing some really fascinating work in all these areas. And um, that eventually led to my um, somewhat reluctantly <laughs> writing this book, uh, a new science of the afterlife. Um, I'm, uh, I'm. Well, I've been hoping you would write a book for many years, as you know. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. It's uh, as I say in the intro to the book. It's writing is a tough grind, at least for me. And so I'm glad I pushed through it and, uh, and managed to get this out uh, middle of last year. One of the worst places in the world is the empty page. <laughs> Ten o'clock in the morning, I I turn on my computer and there it sits, the empty page. But then again, when the pages are all full, then it's a beautiful experience. Uh, now, I'd like to get into a little bit more about the, uh, it would go, we'll go back to the Skoll experiment in a few minutes, but I would like to get a little bit more into the EVP, the electronic aspect of it. And the reason, of course, is, as you know, the implant in my ear, uh, and I believe we corresponded when the two men came here uh, some year, about a year and a half ago and explained to me how the implant worked and uh, how to use it. And they came at four o'clock in the morning. One of them was familiar to me for some unknown reason. The other one was not, but uh, they mentioned at the time that it had been developed by a man named Constantine they pronounced the name raw dive and I thought I, and it, it took me a while and I realized it was Constantine Rodave. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Constantine Rodave because I think he designed this from the other side. And I think this is a piece of technology from the world mm. of the dead, not from aliens, but tell us a little bit about Constantine Rodave. Well, uh, Constantine Rodave. Oh God. I'm not La even going to go there. No, he he spoke six languages, uh, including English, German, Latvian, French, etc. 
Um, he was a re remarkable man, um, uh, lived in, in various European countries, died in 1974. And he was uh, one of the most uh, successful and prolific experimenters in, in the electronic voice phenomenon. Uh, the phenomenon was actually, as far as we know, discovered by a, a Swede, a man named Friedrich Jurgensen, who was well known in his time as a, an actor and a, a documentary film producer, and a, even an opera singer, a multi-talented gentleman, who, um, <clears throat> with the introduction of the um, audio tape recorder in, in the late 1940s and early 50s, um, well, he he acquired a portable recorder, and one night he was out recording nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was working on. And uh, when he played back the tape, uh, in the in the in the silence between the bird sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds, <laughs> and um, this got his attention. Um, at first, he kind of dismissed it as, well, maybe the machine was picking up a radio station and there happened to be a discussion about nocturnal bird sounds at the time. Uh, but then shortly after, he heard um, on one of his tapes the voice of his deceased mother calling him by his childhood nickname, Friedel. And this really got his attention. He realized at this point that something something out of the ordinary was going on. He, he began to experiment and almost devoted the rest of his life to this work of, of um, trying to um, improve the quality of these transmissions and so on. He then was visited by Konstantin Raudova, uh, the gentleman we've been speaking of. Uh, Raudova worked with Jurgensen for a while and then went off and did a lot of his own experiments. Um, and uh, he, he published a book and actually a phonograph record called Breakthrough, uh, which you'll hear part of in, in my film, Calling Earth, um, in which uh, a number of his, his um, electronic voices from the other side have been reproduced. And some of them are quite impressive, I must say. <clears throat> anyway, Radova passed on in, in 74. And then, um, as happens with a number of these experiments who experimenters who pass over, they then show up in the work of their colleagues. So Raudova then began, his voice began to show up in, in the work of other people who were uh, doing electronic voice work with, uh, with tape recorders um, and also directly through radios tuned between stations. Um, and some of this, some of, some of his um, communications are also quite impressive. He uh, made contact with uh, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Mark Macy, some years ago. And um, in my film is a part of the recording that ensued, uh, which was crystal clear. It went on for un several minutes, which is unusual because these contacts are usually quite brief. Um, uh, Raudova then showed up in some of the video work of, of people who have experimented with, with video from the other side. Klaus Schreiber, for example, German fellow who had um, was he was he was bereaved having lost a number of his relatives in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so he started experimenting with EVP. Someone had mentioned it to him. He experimented with it, and the EVPs suggested that he started working with video. Now he he was trained as a saddlesmith. He knew nothing of technology. But uh, with the help of an electrical engineer, he put together a video system that was able to display images of 
deceased people. Some of them were, were quite amazing, uh, quite impressive. Um, then when he passed on, he came through to a German physicist um, who had been doing work in this field uh, through, the, through a telephone. Made, he made a number of, of interesting and perfectly clear telephone conversations, which were recorded, and you'll hear those in my film as well. Um, what, what enables or impedes these communications is unclear to us. Some people feel, oh, the process works better during the waxing phase of the moon or certain times of the month or astrological configurations. We don't know. This has really never been nailed down scientifically. Um, but we know it works. We know that people are using this, these techniques to uh, receive information from their loved ones. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of many ways in which those on the so-called other side, and I'll say in a minute why I say so-called, um, those on the other side can communicate with us sometimes in very rudimentary ways by switching electrical devices on and off. I mean, this is, a lot of people have experienced this sort of thing. Um, but um, the, obviously, you know, to, to hear the, the person's actual voice uh, is, um, is, is a cut above just having lights blinking on and off. Um, I have, I have, I'm more of a journalist than a practitioner, and I, don't have the, I haven't had the patience to try this myself, but I have had various communications, particularly from uh, my late partner, Jane, who died in 2007. Um, she, she was a, the world's greatest technophobe, but managed in some way to um, switch on a clock radio one night uh, when I was thinking about her. The radio switched itself on, and the light of the clock glowed like the sun, lit up the whole room, and the radio went on for a few seconds by itself, went off. It's happened two or three times again in the ensuing several minutes. Um, so that was fun. Yeah, that's um, wonderful. I've also had a number of conversations with her through some amazing mediums that I have worked with. Uh, we'll, we'll get yeah, to the mediumship aspect of it in a few minutes, but right now we've got to take a little break. Uh, we'll be right back. We're talking to Dan Drayson, his book, A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. The great value of this book is its groundedness. When you read this, you realize this almost has to be true. In fact, I'd say you realize it has to be true. It's, there is someone there. There is an afterlife, and we're going there. And what do you think? You must, I mean, you, you've just admitted... A disturbing truth about yourself. You're 80 years old. Let's face it. You don't. 81. Even... 81. Oh, 81. <laughs> well, I'm good. I'm farther behind you than I thought. I'm very <laughs> relieved. Um, in any case, uh, you're going to pass over soon. I mean, by a soon, I mean, someone with a long lifespan like ours, I, I can look back 40, 50 years easily in detail. And believe me, I know that I can look back a lot farther than I have left. And so can you. So what does the idea of passing over mean to you personally now, Dan? 
Well, um, I can hardly wait. <laughs> I feel, I'm so glad you said that. I feel exactly the same way. You know, I, I've had a number of encounters that where the veil between the worlds collapses. And the one happened two nights ago. Uh, and I, I had been saying, I, in efforts to communicate with, my, with Anne, with my wife, that are you still with me? And I'm not hearing from you much. Mm-hmm. And then I had what I think could be safely described as one of the vividest of all lucid dreams. And it was complex, but it began with Anne running up to me and throwing her arms around me, throwing her legs around me. Anne was rather short, and she could have done that easily. And it was so powerful. I I mean, it was a physical experience. I reeled back from the power of her striking me. It was really something. And I thought to myself, what is this veil between the worlds? Why is it so faint? Because it's actually... Is it that we are blocking out this reality? Or tell us about this, what I've become to regard as the strangest thing of all, Mm -hmm. that we are not in direct contact with our dead. Well, I I have my own particular perspective on it. Um, And that is, strange as it sounds, uh, I believe we are already in the afterlife that our awareness itself is part of the fabric of what we call the afterlife. I I actually don't, I'm not fond of the term afterlife particularly, because it's like that, that tail you pin on the end of the donkey. It's, you know, a little, a little extra thing that you, that you um, tack on to what's really real, you know? Um, But I think, I think one way to look at this is that we are already on the other side. And that we're just looking through these bodies and these eyes. Uh, one sort of crude metaphor might be: uh, imagine a, a submarine commander looking through his periscope. And in that metaphor, our bodies would be the top of the periscope. You know, we can we we have this limited range of, of vision and input, and but the but the operator, who's behind all of this can, you know, operate it to some extent and direct it and so on and receive information through it. Um, and, you know, if the the periscope were to be damaged or shot off or whatever, um, the submarine commander would remain happily in his submarine. And you know, perhaps it's a, an, an inverted metaphor, but um, I think some, something like that is how it really works. That um, in my, the subtitle of, of my book is um, has to do with the consciousness code, you know, and I had a little fun with that in the book. We're going to uh, discuss that in a bit. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like our, our, our world is full of codes, you know, DNA codes and other, you know, and intentional codes, uh, encrypted information and so on. But basically a code is, is, um, is, is something that represents something behind it. And, um, you know, our, our, culture's take on consciousness is, well, maybe it's something mechanistic, part of the brain's functioning and so on. 
Um, and certainly the brain is involved as, as a channel, as a mediator of our experience. But the consciousness itself is, is sort of hidden behind our culture's um, set of labels about it. In fact, who we are, looking through these eyes and through our senses, is our essence, our soul, our consciousness, uh, our being. And um, the, the physical aspect is just a, you know, a convenient channel of experience, you might say. But it's not the whole thing. And uh, we know that even ordinary people who haven't had um, experience of mediumship, as they approach their death, they can often see through clearly to the so-called other side and, uh, and realize that it's, it's in continuity to our experience of life. It's not really a separate domain. It's just at a higher frequency, you might say, which may be metaphorical or literal. I suspect it's literal that um, as, in, as in physics, as we know, um, everything comes down to energy. And a lot of it comes down to energy at different frequencies. And when you're locked into a particular band of frequencies, it's hard to send or receive outside of that band. Um, but it seems to me that, that uh, interfacing, from our physical point of view, interfacing with the afterlife, communicating with the afterlife, involves, to one degree or another, a, a kind of a relaxation of our boundaries, our beliefs, um, and all these things that make our physical lives you know, workable and convenient, but aren't really well suited to communicating and interfacing with the greater reality. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's, that's uh, how I put it to myself, at least, and how I've tried to communicate it in this book. Well, I think it makes a great deal of sense. I think that we are in a, in a, in a, in a very interesting situation. And the idea that the body is a sort of periscope gets me to the question of evil, uh, because there would be souls over there peering through these periscopes who were damned evil. I'm like, what was the, what 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 gives with someone like Hitler? Um, you know, what, what is that? You would think that it would be quite different, but it's so violent and so, un, so chaotic. And, and it suggests to me that there may be more than meets the eye here. Oh, you know what we can do before we start talking? We can dispense with the second break at last. So free dreamlanders will be right back. Before the break, we were just about to talk about what the problem of evil. What about evil souls and using bodies to penetrate into this world? Why would a thing like that even happen? So go well, ahead, you, you were about to say. It, it's something that I haven't given a lot of focus to, Whitley. Um, I would say that my my sense of it there, there may be more than one answer to the question. Um, on, the, on, the, on one end, or perhaps at one extreme, there may be souls who consciously have incarnated to do a dirty job in order to precipitate certain crises that are necessary for our collective evolution. 
That's one theory. The other side of it would be the incarnation of souls that have simply not evolved beyond um, the, the framework of what we call human ego. They're souls that are, that are armored, you might say, against yeah. their, own, their own self and, and come through in a, a highly, with a highly illusory framework of, of reality, all based on uh, a narcissistic attachment to their particular experience and viewpoint and human identity. Um, I, I honestly can't judge you know, who's who or what motivates a given individual. Um, some people theorize that uh, for all of his evil, um, the timing of Hitler's incarnation and political involvement and so on uh, vaccinated the planet against um, nuclear energy in the hands of the, of the Nazis. That's an interesting know. idea. No, that's fascinating. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't judge this. These. These are. You know. This may be rationalizations. Um, they may. There may be a, an element of truth to them. Uh, it. It hasn't been a focus of mine. Let's say. But we, you're also implying that there may be a level of, of, uh, if you will, consciousness and our understanding of the mechanisms that are uh, at at large in. The, in the world that is governing this in ways that we wouldn't expect. Like it could be that these these things are experiences that have a value uh, that the wars and so forth do something to build many souls. That in other words, people people are are uh, they need this kind of, of of thing in order to evolve in some way. I don't know. But there's so much that we don't know. Uh, I'd like to go on now to the skull experiment. And before we do that, folks, I would like to remind you that I've interviewed on this program twice a physical medium called Stuart Alexander. First, I interviewed Stuart when he his book was published at the recommendation of Leslie Kane, the New York Times reporter who has been involved with Stuart for many, many years. And he is certainly a very effective physical medium because the second interview came after I visited his seance, which is private. And he, they rarely have guests, which tells you something about his motives as well, because not only is it private, nobody pays anything. And so he's not in it for the money. He does... On rare occasions, he does public demonstrations, but I don't think he's done one in years. So it's not really that. Uh, and at that demonstration, then this, is, Dan, just so you know, is a classic like late 19th century mediumship situation uh, where there's a table and there are uh, spirit uh, trumpets and drum, drum uh, sticks on the table and bells something right out of uh right out of 1895 now the spirit trumpets came to life before my eyes and began to fly around the room and they flew up near the ceiling down and i thought to myself this has to be impossible i'm seeing some it 
No matter how extraordinary it looks, it has to be some kind of a trick. Whereupon, the spirit trumpet, there was only one of them flying around at that point, came in front of me, moved itself up against my nose and went rubbing me up and down. And I realized <laughs> it's rubbing itself in my nose. It is literally And I, then I thought, no, this is no magic trick. This is real. And there were many things during the course of that night that were beyond belief. Uh, or, and they happened. And Leslie, of course, has seen much more, even to the extent of seeing individuals who are identified as from the other side coming physically into the into the room and actually sitting down in a chair in the room in the presence of everyone. So the other world is there. It exists, and not only that, it can manifest in certain ways in the physical world, which gets me to the school experiments, which is a marvelous story. Well, um, that's a hard one to follow. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. Not, not with the school material. The school yeah. material trumps it all the way. I'm just... I, I, I tried to tell that story so that people could understand this is not theoretical and it's not fake. It's not magic tricks. We're talking about something real. This show is a, a lot of this show is about empowerment and this is intended to empower you. So go ahead and let's get deeply into the school experiments. Well, the school experiment was, was an attempt um, to, uh, to bring physical mediumship up, to a new level and to, and to do it in a new way. Uh, the traditional um, sort of mechanics of physical mediumship uh, involve ectoplasm and so forth, which you're familiar with, uh, that, yes. that can then form itself into, into physical form, physical shapes and so on, uh, can allow individuals to materialize and so on. Skull experiment, um, in their words, was an experiment in just using energy, not ectoplasm. And of course, energy can can mean many things, but that I, was how I they put it. I think we'd better do a little aside. And can you explain for our listeners what ectoplasm is? I know what it is, and you know what it is, but I'm not sure everyone does. Okay, ectoplasm is a sort of um, oh, cottony matter that is said to be emanated by a, a physical medium during the seance, and. Um, what it's made of, I don't know. Some people say it's made out of water vapor. Some people say it's been analyzed in this and that way. But whatever it is, it has the capacity to take form no, uh, for, the, for the duration of, of, of the seance. And sometimes those forms are very convincingly solid and look nothing like cottony clouds. Very, very, very solid. Um, how the energy in the skull experiment worked, um, I don't think we have language for, but it worked. Um, basically, um, the, the location for the experiment was a particular house in this tiny town of Skoll. You'll see it in my documentary, um, which is said to have been located at the intersection of two ley lines. Now, ley lines are said to be uh, flows of energy in the earth, uh, again, that we our contemporary science can't detect with its instruments, but individuals can, can be sensitive to, apparently. 
Um, so the location was important. Uh, the the work was done in a um, the house was built in the 1600s. It had this wonderful old dark brick cellar below ground, which was an ideal venue for this experiment. It was very quiet. Uh, other energies, including radio broadcasts and so on, uh, were very much attenuated and minimized in that environment. Um, and the the key to the experiment was was the cooperation of two teams. The, the, the mediums on this side, four, two couples actually, four individuals mainly, um, and a group on the other side that was organized by a, uh, a Victorian lady named Emily Bradshaw, who uh, lived in the 19th century, and a team of uh, people with various speci- special specialized talents um, engineers, photographers, and so on, who had passed um, in within the past hundred years or so. Uh, and they were from the British Isles, North America, and Indian India, mostly English-speaking countries. And uh, they each had their own specialties. One, for example, was talented at um, making his voice uh, come out of thin air in the room, not through the mediums. Um, others had a talent of uh, producing photographs on sealed rolls of film, both, both photographs and, and um, whimsical puzzles and diagrams and all kinds of information on these sealed rolls of photographic film. You'll, you'll see this in my documentary. Um, and um, the, whole, the whole thing was, was very lighthearted. There was a lot of humor, a lot of uh, conversation back and forth, and... Uh, Oh, let's see. There are other things such as uh, apports, um, uh, objects which were apported. Then this is a uh, the language of mediumship is is French influenced. So la porte, these um, these uh, objects were brought apparently from distant places in space and time, and simply dropped onto the séance table, the session table that they had in their in their cellar. Um, and you can see a whole collection of these objects in, in the film. Um, they, um, what else? They were, they were asked, um, the spirit team asked the skull group um, not to have any electrical devices in the room, not to, uh, not to have any electric lights, not even infrared, which they said would, be, would impede their work. So most of this work had to be done in, in pretty much near darkness. Uh, they, they took great pains to um, eliminate fraud and faking by having luminous tabs, dim luminous tabs attached to every movable object in the room. Everyone wore um, luminous uh, bra- um, bands around their wrists. Which that's, how, that's how Stuart works, too. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask you this. Uh, why is it necessary for it to be so dark? Well, uh, according to the spirit team, um, they wanted a, as as little amount of of spurious energies of any kind in the room, whether it was radio communications or visible light or even infrared light. Now, they, they made some exceptions in the course of doing certain experiments. And they would allow, for example, they allowed uh, a 35-millimeter film camera into the room uh, for some of the photographic experiments. 
Um, they, at one point, they allowed them to bring in a VHS uh, videotape camera for some of the other experiments, and you'll see some of the results in, in my film. Um, and uh, there were some tape recorder. One tape recorder documented every one of these sessions continuously, and another small cassette type recorder was used, um, only its amplifier was used to bring voices through from the other side. And um, in one in one instance, uh, one of the, oh, I should mention, by the way, that the, the experiment, which ran for five years, was monitored for two years solidly by a team of three investigators from the British Society for Psychical Research. And these were <clears throat> well-educated, skeptical guys who know all the tricks that that fake mediums can can pull, uh, but they they gave the experiment a clean bill of health. And, and one of them, who was an electrical engineer, at one point asked the spirit team, "Well, how can we how can we improve the reception of this particular device?" And so, what came through on the next roll of photographic film was a diagram indicating how they might improve the, the effectiveness of this device. And on the end of the role, end of the film, were the initials TAE. So um, the investigators um, from the SPR sent, sent away to the Edison Memorial Foundation um, to get a, a sample of Edison's actual signature, and it matched. Oh, my goodness. On the film, right. <laughs> Edison's right. still active. Right. And in one of these films, they got an, a, a, a long poem, ran the full length of the film, um, that was signed W.W., William Wordsworth. Uh, and they found that this was actually a variation on one of his most well-known poems. So it goes on and on and on. Do you recall? Um, Ruth, I think. Was Ruth, the name oh, yes. Poem. Okay. Um, so, the but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a, a literal... Um, copy of it. It was a variation on it. Yes. The, the, uh, we're, uh, our free listeners are about to leave the show or behind forever, (laughs) perhaps not forever. Um, and can you tell us about a little bit more about the film and where we can see it? Well, the, the skull film is called skull, the afterlife experiment. And there's an abbreviated link for it. It's B I T dot L-Y slash Skull Movie, S-C-O-L-E-M-O-V-I-E. It's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Skull Movie. And that will get okay. you there. It's on Vimeo. Well, I'm going to read a couple of lines from Ruth, even though these are not, this is a variant, I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, from the, it's a rather long poem. Uh, so, through dream and vision did she sink, delighted all the while to think that on those lonesome floods and green savannas she should share his board with lawful joy and bear his name in the wild woods. And I think that captures a little bit of the magic of what we are speaking about, which is the magic of being human in this wonderful mystery. I can tell you from experience that as soon as Anne reached the other side, 
the first thing I felt from her was a burst of great happiness. And on that note, Dan, we're going to leave our free listeners behind. As always, I suggest to you that you subscribe to unknowncountry.com and keep us going. I know a lot of you have been doing that lately, and I'm so grateful. Uh, More of you could do it because we have on this show 100,000 listeners, uh, a few video viewers, uh, a couple thousand, but most of you are listening now, and that's a big podcast. We have just about a thousand subscribers just one percent would be wonderful if you could make it two percent that would be that would mean we could afford to do things like make an app which i would just love to do we'll see you again next week continuing on i wonder dan if things are changing Do you have any sense, you've been working on this for a very long time, that the veil between the worlds may be changing in some way, maybe becoming less? Because I feel like a lot more people are becoming comfortable with this. Or am I wrong? Well, I think you're right. Um, You know, compared with, say, 10, 15 years ago, the, the difference is remarkable. Go go to Amazon.com, search just on the word afterlife, and I think it's something like twenty thousand results come up. And um, this this means something. Obviously, some of this is is fictional and reference material, but the the flood of 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 books and media and podcasts um, on this in this question of of the afterlife. Um, it, it's just burgeoned and bloomed and exploded in, in recent years. And if, if one accepts the notion of a morphic field, uh, which I, I tend to accept, the notion that uh, once, once a new pattern uh, gets started and there's enough impetus behind it, that it tends to uh, develop a momentum of its own and a, a, um, a continuity of its own. And... Um, the other thing I think that's happening, and, and this is this gets into uh, the language that we're sort of imprisoned in around a lot of this stuff. I get into this in my book. The, the longest chapter of my book is about the language with which we try to make sense of all. This. I was just going to get into that. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, you know, we we call it the afterlife, um, and that that kind of limit and. It, it reinforces the illusion that consciousness, you know, starts in our physical body and then may continue afterward, right? And well, that's that, one way of looking. You, you point out about the words like anybody and everybody. We're very <laughs> body-oriented in our languages. Right, yeah. That with every repetition, the whole, you know, saying everybody, anybody, somebody, it focuses on our bodies as ourselves. And, you know, that's part of the picture, you know, in our spatiotemporal reality. Um, but it's not the whole picture. And I think if we think of the, um, the I prefer the term the greater reality because that kind of expands it time-wise in both directions. Um, I think uh, reincarnation research is very important because it looks into the past, not just to speculates about the future. Um, I think life between lives research, as, as Michael Newton is the 
probably the greatest pioneer in this in this area, uh, focuses on the between lives experience. If you kind of uh, knit all of these together, weave all of these together, um, you see a very different picture of reality that's not so much centered in our in our current uh, physical incarnation point in time. Um, and this again folds back into the question of language. If we don't have language for something, it's very hard to conceive of it or focus on it. Um, even um, mainstream physics struggles with this, um, and um, you know it, it's it, it's kind of a tangle. If if we if we were able to perceive things more directly and we were more telepathic, we would not need. This uh, this layer of language that sits on top of our experience, and and reduces it to a very very narrow um, band of experience and communication and so on. Uh, you know we're kind of stuck with it for now, um, and uh, you know it it's it, it's it's fine for it, it's it's serviceable for earthly matters, for the most part. But when we get beyond the bounds of, of what our society deals with day to day, uh, it can be an impediment. And I don't know that there's any answer to this other than just becoming more familiar with the experience of, of an expanded reality, however one chooses to do it. Um, and then, you know, we can work back from that and try to maybe come up with, with neologisms and you know, new language and so on. Uh, but the language is just a... It can be a convenience or an inconvenience. Let's put it that way, and and, and it can be misleading. So um, I think that's where we probably should lead it before we get <laughs> lost in the woods in, in the linguistic woods. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, we can easily get lost in those woods. One of the things that has happened after I published the Afterlife Revolution with Anne, which is a a very powerful testament about communication between the worlds is many people want to communicate with their lost loved ones, the ones that have died. And I sensed a sense, a, a lot of frustration that they could see that this was probably real, that I had been communicating with Anne. They couldn't do it though. And what is wrong there? Why, why is it that some people can do this and others can't uh is it is it and this is this this also relates to the limitations of that were observed in the skull experiment and the limitations that are observed in Stuart alexander's seance there are limitations and why do you suppose it is that some people who have passed on are so proficient at manifesting, and others can't do it at all, or maybe they don't want to. I don't know. I I suppose it's the same as in, with any ability or talent, or or um, you know, some some of us may come into this world already having done this so many times that we're simply better at it. Well, maybe some, so. Maybe that's it. You know, it's, it's, I would answer the same the question the same way with regard to any particular ability or talent. Um, to some extent, it can be learned. Whatever is learned works better if it's practiced. And um, you know, who who knows the who knows the history of a given soul? 
and who knows why we have contracted, as some people put it, uh, to live the lives we've lived, um, to, to pass when we pass. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the, the timing of certain things has been, has been, you know, to some extent or to the extent possible worked out in advance toward, toward certain ends. Um, my understanding of my relationship with my por- former partner, Jane, involves a past life um, around the year 1500 in which I was the first one to pass. And in this life, she was the first one to pass. And um, who knows whether we've leapfrogged in that way o- over a number of, of lifetimes. Um, I've had some quite fascinating and um, uh, heart-opening conversations with her through a team of mediums that I work with uh, who are quite uh, amazing. And through these conversations, uh, I've had a number of questions asked, answered. Um, you know, whether I can tell you it's the absolute definitive truth or not, I, I can't prove that. But to myself, the answers make sense. They, they hold together. If I said to you, there's somebody who would like to work with a really good medium could you recommend anyone or how would that work? Can, can, can we perhaps put up a link on the website somewhere that could help people go down the right path? Because there's wrong paths too. Yeah. There's a, there's an organization called the forever family foundation. It's based in New York city actually. And they have a program where they certify mediums. And they have a list on their website of their own certified mediums. I, I, I can't personally vouch for, for any of these. I can only vouch for the ones that I've worked with. But the, the Forever Family Foundation uh, focuses on um, bereavement, on contact with loved ones who have passed, and so on. And um, I don't have their link in front of me, but just Google up the Forever Family Foundation and, and okay. follow, follow the links. And they, I, I would, I would imagine that their certified mediums are, um, are the real deal. The also there's the Spiritualist Church of America, whose mm-hmm. mediums at the Lilydale Assembly in upstate New York pass a very rigorous test. It's really rigorous. I've, I'm well aware of how it works, and I don't see how anyone could pass that test without being a real medium. Uh, so how, how, would, how, how would people contact that group? Well, I'll put it up on the website uh, so that if you want to contact, go to unknowncountry.com and to the show page, and you'll be able to get into contact with either of these groups. Um, and we're also going to have a medium from uh, the Lilydale Assembly on the show a little later in the year uh, when it gets close to the summer and they're getting ready to open up again. I was there last summer to give a talk, and it was an absolutely wonderful experience. And uh, so now we have a, uh, I have a, 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 we have so many cultural issues here and among them are issues involving religions there are quite a few religions who frown on ideas of communicating with the other side i I, i'm not sure which ones i i know i'm 
pretty sure the evangelicals do, and I'm pretty sure the Catholics do. Uh, what do you say to, to religious groups that are saying, well, this is always demonic, these, these, this isn't real, and this is dangerous and you shouldn't do it? Well, I, I honestly don't have an answer for that because I haven't really w worked in that area very much. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, to some extent, I've, it seems to me that what people believe is what ends up sort of concretizing for them yes. in, their, in, their, in their lives and in any efforts to communicate. Um, some people, I think, I'll, perhaps there's some area, answers in the areas of the near-death experience because um, a number, quite a number of people who've had NDEs um, and who come from religious background, when they, when they come back, they say, oh, now I understand, you know, religion has its purpose, but it's not, you know, it's not the real experience, not the real deal. Other people come back and they say, well, I saw Jesus. I really saw Jesus. And I say, okay, fine. Other people say, I saw Jesus, but I know that it was a being kind of masquerading in that form for my benefit. So there, there's a, a whole spectrum of answers to that question. Um, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not a member of any church. Um, I, I have to say that my formal religious education is very limited. Um, I grew up in a, um, a non-religious um, Jewish family. When I was 12 and a half, my father said, um, uh, do you want a bar mitzvah? I said, well, why should I want a bar mitzvah? He says, I don't know, but there's a, <laughs> there's a, a yeshiva, a Jewish school on, on the next block. Why don't you go in and, and see if maybe there's something that would interest you? Okay, so I, next Saturday I go and all the kids welcome me and they say, you know, welcome to, the, welcome to Saturday school. And there's one thing you need to know. I said, what? I said, you're not allowed to say the name of God. I said, what? I come here to learn about God. Oh, no, you can't say that. I said, well, this is crazy. And I walked out and I never came back. And that was the <laughs> sum, sum total of my formal religious education. Well, that's now, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to demean it. This was my yeah. response to, you know, to this, this particular formality, you might say. Um, but I think you know, most of... most. I, I don't really distinguish religion, you know, formal religion from other any other belief system. Uh, skepticism, as we know it in our modern times, is is a kind of a religion of its of its own. I call it yeah. pseudo skepticism. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a belief system that says, well, um, science must look into into everything, but so and so. Right. Right. We can't we can't go there. Right. Um, that's that's a you know a, a very familiar. Uh, um, it's part of the structure of many religions. This is this is okay. That's not okay. Well, one of the things that happens with science is that a uh, 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 as a community, they become uh, afraid or unwilling to open the, their minds to things that aren't already in the scientific canon, like. In 1998, Lord Kelvin published a very elaborate paper proving that heavier-than-air travel was not possible and received a rather embarrassing experience, uh, discovery a few years later when the Wright brothers proceeded to fly. 
Uh, and that, that, that the scientific uh, enterprise is full of that. You know, but getting to the religion, I want to tell a little story that I think you'll enjoy a lot about uh, religion. My, one of my uncles was the uh, attorney for the Archdiocese of San Antonio for many years. And when he passed away, the, all the archbishop and all of the bishops turned out to say his mass, his funeral mass. And I was there, of course, with the rest of the family. And um, I was delighted to see that a certain bishop was on the altar uh, co-celebrating the mass because I hadn't seen him in years. And I used to be his altar boy back in the 50s. And we had a lot of fun together. We were not very good at we were we were we were bad both of us and we had a great deal of fun we uh on the on the altar our main our main effort uh on the altar was not to get the giggles because we made each other laugh so much in any case that's neither here nor there let's put it this way we weren't pious but we were very serious about it i believed it implicitly all of it at the time so so anyway i watched him and i thought oh how fun i'm gonna get to see Bishop Levin, and I'll, afterwards I'll talk to him. I haven't talked to him in years. So afterwards there was a little wake, and I went in and chatted with him. We talked about old times, and I left, and uh, I happened to mention to my brother, by the way, I saw Bishop Levin there. I haven't seen him in so long, and it was such a nice conversation. The next day he calls me up, and he says, Whitley, you do understand Bishop Levin died in 1986. This was like five years ago, four years ago. And I said, no, I didn't know he died in 1986. I just talked to him. He said, well, he died in 1986. Well, he said, I said, I talked to him for quite a while. I was standing right in front of him. There was no indication whatsoever that he was dead. But I looked it up myself. And I had had a conversation with a man who had been dead for years. I had no idea. There was no indication that he was dead then. Now, I, I can... Yeah, go ahead, but that means, I, I, I can I can support your experience with one of my own. Okay. Um, in December of 1967, uh, as you as you may know, I was involved with John Keel in the Mothman investigation back then. Yes. And um, you know, if if you've seen the that awful Richard Gere movie, The Mothman Prophecies, which was based very very loosely on John's book. Um, you, you know about this bridge collapse, which really did happen on the Ohio River in December of, of 67. Um, and on the night that that occurred, uh, I, John and I were back in New York where we lived at the time. And I went over to visit John and for a few minutes. And uh, he had a friend of his with him named Joe, who John hadn't seen in years. Uh, he, Joe had just kind of shown up that night out of nowhere. And so they were kind of reminiscing about old times. And I met Joe, he was a big, big guy um, with a mustache, um, dark hair, very firm handshake. It's the thing I remember most about him, very firm, solid handshake. Anyway, John and Joe went out for the evening, I went home. Um, and a couple of years later, John encounters Joe's wife in Macy's department store. And he says, oh, you know, how's Joe? I haven't seen him. I haven't been able to reach him. What's going on? And his wife says, well, I'm sorry. Joe died five years ago. And John oh, said, I, I saw him 
three years ago, my friend Dan met him, and I was with other friends that evening who who met him. Um, but in fact, Joe had not been able, John had not been able to reach Joe after that evening. His phone was disconnected, and so on and so on. So this is a a big mystery. Anyway, he finds Joe's wife, who tells him that that uh, Joe had been dead for two years that that evening that we met him. And I have to tell you that there was no no hint of anything unusual about Joe. He was perfectly solid, perfectly human. Uh, had a relaxed conversation with him for several minutes. I had heard about these called materializations. There's actually a term for it. Um, I'd heard about these, and I was actually kind of skeptical about them, but curious. And um, so there you have it. I had this experience uh, similar, you know, to, to what you reported. The thing, the thing I wonder about is, you know, we call these things paranormal. But how do we know how normal or otherwise these things are if we can't talk about it? Right. But, but it's, it's, how do we know? This leads to an obvious question. How do we know anything about anybody walking in the street? And did yeah. they know, they, did some of them, did Bishop Levin know he was dead in this world? Did Joe know? Which just it's extraordinary. It, it's just that everybody, the, the, every, the, every, this place may be one hell of a big mystery that we don't realize <laughs> is even there. I find that a tremendously fun to think about. I, I do too. I do too. Um, we, we take our particular um, projection of reality as, uh, as the one and only reality. Right. What do we know? What do we know? You know, we do, we look at, the, you know, we see folks walking on the street. How many of them are materializations? There's no way to know. Can't, can't keep yeah. tabs on everyone. There's no way to know, and they may not know themselves. Um, well, that that is a good question. What what was their experience when when they were materialized? Right. Well, you know, I had uh, in the at the uh, Monroe Institute one of the courses is about helping people realize that they are dead, and mm-hmm. I've had that experience. I've done that numerous times, even with our cat Co. Our little mm-hmm. Siamese cat died, and. Uh, showed up at the house and I had done it so often. He wasn't physically material, but he was that I, I know how to turn them because what's happening is that they're not looking in the right direction. <laughs> it's like they die and then the world, nothing changes except as Anne put it uh, after, right after she died, it looks like you're all intentionally ignoring us. But the <laughs> difference is she knew where she was, but these people who die like this they don't know they don't see they see this world exactly as it is there's no exit and well, this except, is- so anyway i you can turn them and i turned the cat and the cat went off <clears throat> years well, later brings- and, oh go ahead Dan. i'm sorry oh just quickly oh this brings up another another issue you know we, we ask we say well where is the afterlife located you know we think of it as being off in some physically distant heaven somewhere. And the team of mediums that I've worked with for five years say over and over again, it's just, it's right here. It's all around us. You know, it's just, exactly. I'm sure it is. You you and I are sitting in our, in our homes and there's a thousand radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts and wireless transmissions going through our immediate space at all times. Right. They don't exist because again, they're 
beyond the scope of our physical senses. But we, we know for good reason that they're real. You know, our radios, you tune it to resonate with that frequency, and boy, the broadcast comes right through. Exactly. So, exactly. so this, this appears to be what's going on um, where in, in those cases where an individual uh, retains their perception of their form into the afterlife. Um, that they may they may be you know sitting on the chair next to us and we don't see it um, because of the limitations again of our senses and our our physical being. Um, I, I I don't know whether this is true of of everyone who passes over. Some may immediately skip up to a higher level where physical form as we know it is not needed. There's some other way in which individuality in some sense is is expressed um you know we can only speculate about this i i tend to see the levels of reality kind of as a, a crudely expressed as a multi-story building um, where you know there's the mineral level and then there are animals and crawling around on the first floor and we're maybe on the second story and from the third to the umpteenth are various levels of what we call the afterlife of the greater reality and then when you get to the top there's no limits, you know, there's no walls. And that, that would be the state of, of unity. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's right to sort of lump the whole afterlife together as one kind of realm. Uh, it seems to me, from, from many communications that, that we've heard over the years, that, that there are various um, levels. They may not be discrete, discrete, it may be a continuous spectrum of some kind. Um, but that there are, the different levels have different characteristics. I think those who either by, you know, by their own constitution or by their choice, who choose to remain relatively close to our physical frequency, um, it's easiest for them to communicate with us and maintain relationships. Um, others may, you know, by their own nature, choose to go to a higher frequency and do whatever they do there and be however they be there. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's great fun to communicate with the other side. Um, it's, um, we, we discover that those, those who hang around, uh, still have their sense of humor. Some of them have some of their concerns that they left with. Some have trouble passing over even, and that's where you get into things like, um, haunting of physical locations and so on, where the, the, the consciousness is still somehow attached to, to this level. Uh, a friend of mine passed away about I think it was about ten years ago, and he he was one of these folks who had his body frozen. Um, there's a facility in the Phoenix area um, called Alcor that offers this service where they freeze either your body or your, just your head or just your brain after you die, and the right <laughs> right and and the idea is that someday science in its infinite um, wisdom will come up with a way of uh, defrosting uh, and, and defrosting these these uh, bodily parts and reintegrating them somehow, and then we'll you know we'll live forever. So this particular friend of mine did this. He had his body frozen, and at one point I asked one of the mediums that I work with, um, you know, can, what what's what's what goes on with him. So she visited the facility and saw him um, obsessively attached to his body, obsessively focusing on this frozen body. 
and um, so she she uh, established a, at first very gently a dialogue with him, and eventually he was able to release his attention from that uh, obsessive focus on his body. And um, eventually, he ended up thanking me for bringing her in and, and releasing him from this you know, focus on this dead meat. She also, the medium also said that the vibration in that place was um, very difficult for her to um, to hang out with. Yeah, I can imagine. And that makes sense to me because the consciousness, you know, focused so rigidly on on the physical matter uh, would. I think I'm, I'm I'm sensing a kind of a muck about it, a very kind of um, sluggish vibrational atmosphere. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's we're here to talk. Well, we it started as an interview, but it's, my interviews usually do. After a while, it becomes a discussion, and that's where we are now in the discussion section. So, uh, in my case, I I've had quite a few uh, dead people that have been trapped that I've been able to help release. And one of them being my own grandmother, who mm. her mother lived to 106, and she right. died at 85, and she simply refused to believe she was dead. And the first experience I ever had of this, all this world, was at her funeral when suddenly six huge orbs showed up and lined it came down and were beside the coffin. This was back in the seventies. And I was a young man and I didn't realize at first that nobody else had seen them. And so people would have heard this, Oh, <laughs> noise. And you know, I made a noise and, and jostled me. And then I realized, of course, nobody else sees this. And I immediately was communicated with that she did not believe she was dead and she was still in the body, in the coffin. And they couldn't get her to come out. It took years. That same obsessiveness that you talk about, I finally got her at least five years later, maybe six. Wow. She was just, there was nothing left of her. She was just staring at the front of a beautiful home, a house. That was all she had, a memory of this world. I finally got her to turn around and look at me and realize that she wasn't the world she was trying to make herself believe in didn't even exist. And the irises of her eyes turned gold and mm -hmm. she disappeared. Wow. She finally got out. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Yeah. Dan, good uh, job. <laughs> well, we all do it. We all do it, uh, and I think I think it's interesting, isn't it, that the truth of the matter is that we, the physical, play a great role in the, in the management and and of of the non physical world also, and we have to be ready to help when called upon. Yeah. Yeah. This um, your your um, what you had just mentioned reminded me of a particular um, uh, experience that I'd had when when my late partner Jane was was dying um, in the hospital. She 
it was obvious to me that she left her body several hours before the body expired. And this was, you know, both, both heartbreaking and fascinating to me at the same time, because the body uh, suddenly became a different kind of thing. It, its responses were, were more um, crude and primitive, you might say. But ask a question and the response would be, just a very, very crude, kind of difficult mm. energy. And um, without going into a lot of detail, um, some years later, I had uh, actually a wonderful conversation with Jane through a, a, a very talented medium. And I asked her, I said, you know, it was my impression that you left your body um, quite a while before the body expired. And she said, yes. I said, why? And she said, I couldn't stand to see you see me in that condition. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> Goodness me, what a wonderful story. Yeah, right. Oh. So, yeah, this is just you know, one, one, one particular little experience that, that meant a lot to me and taught me a lot. Um, you know, I, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating, the, the, the timing of birth and death and so on. It's a whole other area. I'm, I mean, I'm not especially into astrology, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I recognize that there are influences that, that um, can can further our our purposes, our purposes for incarnating, our purposes for doing whatever business we do here yeah. on the planet, and that that time, physical time, uh, plays a, a role in these in these processes. Um, in, in my book, I emphasize the, the, there are time, the word time really means two very different things to us. There's physical time, which can be measured by physical processes, tick-tock mechanisms and orbits and so on. Uh, that's all, you know, that's one thing. Our experience of time, subjective time, is another framework entirely. And when we're alive, to some extent, they coincide. But there, there's always this, you know, it, it, it passes faster when we're having fun and it doesn't when we're not. Uh, so our, our inner experience of time is a very different thing from, from the, the objective um, physical processes in, in, our, in our world. And I, I think it's important to, to remember that and keep in mind that to the extent that we are at a higher level of vibration, the ex the experience is more important than the than whatever amount of physical structure there may seem to be um, you know what how can how can we picture a reality that is so different from our physical reality um, you know on the lower levels of the afterlife it may mimic the physical world in some in some very interesting and fascinating ways at higher levels, it's a more flexible or fluid or malleable kind of reality. And I tend to think of it as more like a, a hologram where there isn't literal space as we think of it and where every part is in some sense present in the whole. And so the idea of there being separate entities in the afterlife is really only relative or, or partial. Uh, it's very hard to put this into language. But for example... Uh, we we hear that when we pass over, we may be met by relatives or friends 
who project an image of themselves at an earlier age, usually very often at the prime of their lives. They may also choose to project an image that's more familiar to us as an older person, for example. But are they actually putting on a skin in that shape? Or are they simply projecting that image into our consciousness? And we someone can. else over here might see them in a completely different way because they're projecting right. a different image. But not, it's not, they're not changing their surface. They're, they are literally transmitting to our consciousness a particular image which then manifests to us. So this is a very different kind of um, relationship and structure than in our physical space. Yes, we have solid matter and we have shapes and uh, these shapes change with our physical age and so on. Um, anyway, that's just one speculation that seems to seems to make sense in terms of the, of the communications that we've had from the other side. But, you know, a, a, as our understanding evolves, you know, I'm sure we'll have even more sophisticated uh, ways of, of putting these things. You know, as you, speaking of psychic things, my brother and I are psychically connected, I think. Mm -hmm. As you were talking, he texted me just randomly. He has no idea we're talking about this or that we're even talking together. Uh, Suzanne Summers' husband says her spirit still lives on after death. Strange things are happening. That uh, text came in as you were talking about uh, your relationship at the end of, of your, of your, I guess she wasn't your wife. Uh, of your, your we were partner. We had been partners for eleven years. Yeah. Okay, so your partner. Um. So we have a, you know, and uh, so we're part of a, a web of, of, of consciousness. None of us is alone. Uh, John Dunn said, "No man is an island," and that's quite true. We just don't want to believe that, many of us. And uh, we don't want to accept the fact that we're part of a community. We'd rather be, you know, one um, alone and being able to do whatever we damn well please in the world when that's not necessarily true, which gets me to the other side of the coin. We talked about the many, perhaps, levels of ascension you were talking about. But what about the other direction? I've had a lot of experience with it. And uh, uh, just recently, I had a, a, an experience. It was an out-of-the-body experience that was also so vivid that it was like a physical experience. And that is the second body can get very solid. Uh, as we, I think we probably, were, when we were discussing uh, uh, Joe, and uh, we were talking about a, a non-physical body that was very physical-looking, or the or the bishop, and I found myself in an underworld situation with a woman, and she was in terrible shape. This I'm not even going to describe the place. It's I'm not. I do not wish to do that. Suffice to say, it was utterly vile, mm. and she was filthy. And she had been there for a long time. I could see her fingernails were cracked and thick, and that obviously hadn't been she hadn't been tended to in any way in a long time. And she smelled. All right, I didn't smell her, but I assumed she smelled. 
uh, and she looked at me and I realized she wants to be helped. Mm -hmm. She wants to be loved. And she's going to put her arms around me if I let her. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. But I, I opened my arms and she came into my arms and put her arms around me and we hugged each other tight. It was a very intimate, like hugging a physical person in the physical world, except I think we might have been in hell. <laughs> and then it was over. And I I don't pray regularly. I try to pray more than I wish I, because I do believe prayer matters. Uh, and I prayed for her. I pray for her now all the time and all like her. What do you think of this underworld? If, if it even exists in your vision of reality. Well, I, I would imagine that this is, you know, simply the, the other end of a spectrum. That the, the particulars of, of an experienced hell are probably to some extent uh, based on our own projections, our own visions of what hell ought to be, and are probably just a, a, an outpicturing of feeling. That given given a particular state of consciousness, awareness, that is the projection that one would be expected to create, an environment that one would be expected to project. And you apparently were able to enter into that environment um, sufficiently to um, hopefully help release her from that. Yeah, yeah, um, I hope so. I've been in it more than once. That's just the latest mm -hmm. one, and. You know, that's, I, a, that's a service, genuine service. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the um, the book. Um, uh, I'll think of the name of it. It's it's the Afterlife Journal of T. E. Lawrence, uh, as channeled no. by uh, the British medium Jane Sherwood. It's an amazing and wonderful book. Um, oh well, I, I'll certainly uh, I'll, look I'll it send up. You yeah, it's you. Yeah. You can find it on Amazon, um, still in print. And um, T. Lawrence, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, died in the late '30s in a motorcycle accident. He he had been um, kind of living a, a a lonely retired life there out in the country and in England. And uh, he loved fast motorcycles. Uh, he had three of the of the top of the line bro motorcycles and was driving over a hill one day and over the hill there were some kids on bikes so he swerved to avoid them crashed his bike um was in a coma for some days and then um awakened slowly in his afterlife several years later he contacted a medium named jane sherwood a british lady who had lost her husband in the first world war um they were married and shortly after their marriage her husband, who didn't have a military bone in his body, he must, he must join the arm and fight. He went right to the front lines and was killed. So she made it her life's purpose to contact him. Um, and so she, she went to various mediums and psychics and gurus and so on. And she felt that um, she didn't have the confidence that, that this was really him coming through. Anyway, she, she then started to practice automatic writing. 
and when she saw her husband's handwriting coming through her hand, um, that was at that point she felt, yes, well, this is a reliable communication. At that same time that she was connecting with her husband, T.E. Lawrence was casting about for a medium to whom he could dictate his own book about the afterlife. And, and that's what happened. It was a slow process. From his point of view, it was just painfully slow dictating to a living human being, um, which is in, in itself is, is interesting. Anyway, his story is, um, it's, I mean, it is his particular story and should not be mistaken as a, a universal account of, of the afterlife. But it's very beautifully, beautifully and articulately written. And the whole thing is rendered in, in delicious early 20th century British English. And um, he, he narrates his, his progression from uh, first becoming aware after his physical death of his awareness of being aware. He, he didn't, he was, it was, everything was just dark around him. He had no perceptible environment. And this was followed by a gradual appearance of uh, what he perceived as a typical English village. He was drawn to it. He went into this village, um, realized that it was a very dark place. And he started getting more and more uncomfortable in this, in this, in this environment. So he went out out onto the nearby road, sat down, and, you know, what am I going to do? I, where is this place? Who am I, you know? So he asked for help. And the moment he asked for help, a helper began to manifest. And finally manifested as a man who introduced himself with the name of Mitchell. Said he was involved in a sort of um, a sanatorium, a healing place, where he brought... Um, Lawrence, too, gave him a room to live in, became his sort of mentor and his shrink. And as the book unfolds, he, he narrates his progression, his painful progression from someone who was so ego-driven during his human life and so ready to exploit others for the sake of his image as Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, they had, he had to face a lot, of, a lot of these patterns in his psyche. Um, and uh, eventually managed to un untangle these patterns in his being. I won't get into a lot of detail here, but I think you will find it absolutely fascinating. And I would well, I'm, re I'm certainly recommend going to, it to your, to your subscribers. Well, I'm certainly going to get it, and it's called Postmortem Journal, yeah. Communications from Lawrence of Arabia Through the Mediumship of Jane Sherwood, that's and it. it's by Jane Sherwood. So you can look it up and, and certainly get a copy of it. I'm going to do that today. Um, yeah, it's, thank it's you for the recommendation. It looks like it's going to be a really fascinating experience because, you know, everything we do along these lines strengthens us, doesn't it? it you know, reading your book, uh, watching your documentary, uh, uh, reading a book like that, all of this makes us stronger makes us more capable to fight to fight the soul deadening realities of life that has as it has emerged since the industrial revolution mm -hmm. yeah that's true I, I I love I love the quote I think it's from Seth I'm not sure um, death is perfectly safe and natural it's like taking off a tight shoe <laughs> 
You know, I think, Dan, that we've come to the end of our conversation. That's the perfect place to end, taking off a tight shoe. Well, two old guys, uh, both of us well aware of the fact that we're not, not going to be spending too much more time here, both of us in the same state, very different from what it might have been 25 or 50 years ago or even 10 years ago, looking forward to the new experience, and in my case especially, and I'm sure yours too, looking forward to reconnecting with those we love. Thank you, folks, for being with us, and thank you all for being subscribers to Unknown Country. Isn't this fun? I just enjoy these interviews so much, and I know that you guys do too. Dan, and thank you for being with us and for being my friend. Well, thank you too, Whitley. It's mutual. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.